Numbers 26 on August 26. Well, that's an interesting correlation of numbers while preaching through the book of Numbers. <laughs> We've actually seen that Numbers is the Septuagint title of the book, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew title of this book is Bemidbar, In the Wilderness which is a much more apt title for this book that really does look at the Old Testament church, Israel, in the wilderness and speaks volumes to us as the new Israel, the New Testament church that is still in the wilderness of sorts. And yet because of the coming of Christ, there is a new reality and we are looking forward to a promised land, uh, not only of heaven, but ultimately a new heavens and a new earth. And so we come to chapter 26 and we see uh, Israel now on the banks of the River Jordan, um, ready to enter into the promised land. And in chapter 26, we have a second census uh, to be compared with the census that was back in chapter 1. Before we read it and do any of that, let's come before the author in prayer. Lord, as we have worshipped in song, we now worship in study. Grateful for the opportunity to have your word opened to us. And so it is that we would pray for your Holy Spirit to come, that that might be the case. For your spirit to bear witness to the reading and preaching of the words so that it is your word and that your word is opened to us. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Numbers begins in chapter 1. Gee, thanks, Pastor Dan. You're amazing. Let me have you turn back to chapter 1 just for a moment so you can visually look at how it is that this book began. And we see in chapter 1 this census of all the men in Israel who were 20 years old and older who are able to serve in the army. Chapter 1 then tells the names of a man from each tribe who's going to help with the census of that particular tribe. And then you can even just the way you look at it, you can see that the chapter goes through tribe by tribe, giving the number for each tribe. And that's it for most of it. And then down until verse 46, where we get the total number of 603,550. This chapter is very systematic, going step by step, tribe by tribe. Now flip over to chapter 26, where we have the second census taken 40 years later. And just looking at the two chapters, you can see that chapter 26 looks similar, but it also looks a little bit different. Both the similarities and the differences are important. Now back in January, when I read chapter one, I did not read every name. And for chapter 26, I'm not going to read every name either not because the names are not important, but because reading a list of names will take away from the point of the passage. So I'm going to read all of the first 11 verses and then kind of skim the middle section and then read the final 16 verses. So listen to the reading of God's word from chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. After the plague... The Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. 
so on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan across from Jericho, Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them and said, take a census of the men 20 years old or more as the Lord commanded Moses. These were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. The descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were through Hanok, the Hanakite clan, through Palu, the Peluite clan, through Hezron, the Hezronite clan, through Carmi, the Carmite clan. These were the clans of Reuben. Those numbered were 43,730. The son of Palu was Eliab, and the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. The same Dathan and Abiram were the community officials who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and were among Korah's followers when they rebelled against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men, and they served as a warning sign. The line of Korah, however, did not die out. And then at verse 12, we get the descendants of Simeon uh, down through, and then each of the tribes are named, tribes and then clan by clan, giving us numbers for the tribe. And that goes down from verse 12 all the way down through verse 50. So pick up again at verse 51. The total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. The Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. These were the Levites who were counted by their clans. Through Gershon, the Gershonite clan. Through Koath, the Koathite clan. Through Merari, the Merarite clan. These also were Levite clans, the Libnite clan, the Hebronite clan, the Malalite clan, the Mushite clan, the Korahite clan. Kohath was the forefather of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, a descendant of Levi, who was born to the Levites in Egypt. To Amram she bore Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. Aaron was the father of Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they made an offering before the Lord with unauthorized fire. All the male Levites, a month old or more, numbered 23,000. They were not counted along with the other Israelites because they received no inheritance among them. These are the ones counted by Moses and Eleazar the priest when they counted the Israelites in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priest when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the desert, and not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. All right, let's break this down a little bit so it has some application to life. <laughs> let's first begin by looking at the numbers in numbers and kind of go back through with an overview. Note first the context of this census. Verse 1, after the plague after the plague that we read about in chapter 25. Yet another example of the people engaged in outright rejection of the Lord. Here is a census that shows Israel 
still exists by God's powerful grace. Then notice the location for the census. Verse 3. So on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan across from Jericho, the census was taken. This first census, back in chapter 1, was taken in the desert of Sinai, in the desert, in the wilderness, Bay Midbar. Now they are standing on the banks of the River Jordan, the entry into the promised land. They have made it to their final destination point by God's powerful grace. Then notice, along with that context and that location, the expansion of the census. The census is not simply tribe by tribe, but the names of the clans of each tribe are also named. Again, for example, verse 5, the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn, Hanak the Hanak clan, Pelu the Pelite clan, Hezron the Hezronite clan, through Carmi the Carmite clan. Pretty easy to see how the names of the clans get made. But here, the nation of Israel has in many ways grown and developed over the past 40 years. So even while suffering in the desert, Israel is in many ways better and stronger by God's powerful grace. Verses 8 through 10 then name the sons and grandsons of Palu in order to remind Israel of the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram and Korah. We'll come back to that. Verses 12 through 50 mostly list tribes, naming the clans and giving the number for the tribe. But look at verse 19 so that you might highlight that. Ur and Onan were sons of Judah, but they died in Canaan. Again, we'll come back to that. And then down to verse 51, the total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. How many were there back in chapter 1? 603,550. is virtually the same number. Now, various study Bibles or commentaries will give side-by-side comparisons of how many were in each tribe in chapter 1 versus how many are in chapter 26. And for the most part, the only reason to know those things is so that you can win Bible trivia pursuit challenges. Five tribes in, uh, decreased, uh, seven tribes increased, just being able to name any of the tribes is probably going to win you most of those Bible challenges. So some of the tribes changed by just a couple of thousand, but others by a larger margin. The largest increase is Manasseh, growing by 20,000 from 32,000 plus to 52,000 plus. The largest decrease is Simeon, declining by 24,000 from 59,000 plus to 22,000 plus. Recall that in the last chapter, We read about those who engaged in sexual immorality with Moabite women and then worshipped the Baal gods of the Moabites. And the one offender who is named in that passage is Zemir, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. So it certainly stands to reason that of the 24,000 who had died in the plague of chapter 25, a large number were from the tribe of Simeon. It certainly brings their rebellion into focus, just as the notes about Korah's rebellion from the Reubenite tribe brought that into focus. Notable that Judah had been the largest tribe and still is the largest tribe. That'll be important as we look at verse 52, that the Lord says to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. 
to a larger group, give a larger inheritance, to a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. And so the census not only counts the number of men who are able to be a part of Israel's army, but the census also determines what size land each tribe will receive. Now, in the opening chapters of this book of the Bible, the book of Numbers has a 13th tribe of Levi that's not counted along with the other 12 tribes. They are not counted separately because they are separately called. That is also the case here. Beginning in verse 57, the Levite tribe, that 13th tribe, is listed by their three clans along with five subclans. And the total number of male Levites, a month old or more, numbered 23,000. And this morning, you win Bible trivia if you can remember how many Levites there were back in chapter 3. 22,000. There you go. So the Levites have grown by a 1,000 over these past 40 years. All right, having seen then all these numbers and numbers, let's go behind the numbers. 601,730 men are the total, 20 years old or older, who can serve in the army. 23,000 Levite males to serve as priests, which means the nation is estimated to be well over 2 million people. Over 2 million left Egypt, and 2 million are going to enter into the promised land. How many deserve to enter into the promised land? Yeah, none. In order to see the main point of all these numbers, we see the beginning from the end. The last two verses of this passage tell us something profound about all those who are counted in the second census. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priest when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the desert. And not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. So all those who are counted back in that first census have died in the wilderness because of their sinful rebellion against the Lord. And if not for the mediation of Moses and Phinehas, they all would have died in the desert. So how is it that two million people are about to enter the promised land? By God's powerful grace. How many of us deserve to enter into the eternal promised land? Yeah, none. So how is it that elect believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue will enter into the eternal promised land? By God's powerful grace. If not for the perfect mediation of Jesus Christ, we would all die in the wilderness and face eternal torment. But then look again at verse 64. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priest when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. Those who will enter the promised land were not counted back in the desert of Sinai 40 years ago because they had not yet been born. And yet God had determined that they would one day be born and that they would one day enter the land. Reminds us of Ephesians 1. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If not for God's determination to save and bless his people 
we would all perish. God's grace to a rebellious people is the theme and focus of Numbers 26. God's grace to a rebellious people is what Numbers 26 is all about. Verses 9 through 11 highlight Korah's rebellion, along with Dathan and Abiram, which resulted in death and despair. Verse 14 shows that Simeon is half the tribe they once were as a result of their worshiping other gods. Verse 19 highlights Ur and Onan, two sons of Judah who had died childless because of their wickedness. And then we also read in verses 59 through 61 of failure among the Levites. And so there were those of the Levites who had also perished because of their faithlessness. A whole generation died in the desert because of rebellion. If not for God's grace, determining to bless his people and keep his promise, the nation itself would have died in the desert and existed no more. The sin of unbelief leads to death. Unbelief takes our eyes off of God and puts it on ourselves. When faced with trial, unbelief doubts that God is sovereign and good, and it leaves us in a state of worry and despair while robbing God of his glory. When we encounter success, unbelief thinks our triumphs are by our own hands and seeks to reward ourselves in destructive ways while robbing God of his glory. And so we see these numbers and numbers, and we go behind the numbers, but let's talk real numbers. There's a practical reality in these numbers, namely the actual inheritance to be received. Look again at verse 53. The land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. So notice that there's two directives here. Distribute the land based on the size of the tribe. That is to say that larger numbers of people are going to need a larger space in which to live. That certainly makes sense. But then the actual land itself is determined by casting the lots, rolling the dice. Will your tribe live in the mountains or down by the sea? Will you be up in the north, down in the south? Will you be in the east or you'll be over by the west? What tribes will live around you? The Lord is working out all of those logistics before they have even crossed the river to go into the promised land. The Lord has already ordained where everyone will live before they have even entered the land. The Lord has determined the place for each person, even though they have not yet conquered the Canaanites who are living there. The sovereign God of the universe has worked out your salvation before you even came into the world. The sovereign God of the universe has planned out all of your days before you even live a single one. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to live. It doesn't mean that we don't need to take hold of the salvation that has been given to us. The opposite of that, in fact. It's the encouragement to be faithful to the one who is eternally faithful. God's sovereign grace is an encouragement to be faithful to the one who is eternally faithful. Rebelling against the Lord is simply rebelling against the blessing he has determined for you. 
There is no advantage to that, only misery. The Lord had determined that Israel would enter the promised land, and they did. But 40 years of misery spent in the desert, and a whole generation that died in the desert because of rebellion. Now, earlier in the service, we read 1 Corinthians 10, which says, These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as the Israelites did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 died. These things happened as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So we're not simply to look at the warnings of the past and shrug our shoulders and say, well, good thing we've got Jesus. Yes, we rejoice in our salvation and deliverance and forgiveness through Jesus, but this does not mean we can excuse the examples. We are not to ignore the warnings of idolatry. The fact that Jesus has come and accomplished our salvation does not mean that we become antinomian against law. We can now obey the law more fully Certainly the law points us to our need for Christ as Savior, but also shows us the way to follow Christ as Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 then immediately flows from this warning against idolatry from past examples to solemn words about the Lord's Supper. And that seems like an odd pairing, doesn't it? Flee from idolatry, heed the warnings of the past, come to the Lord's table. And she was like, okay, how do, how do you get from one to the other? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, connects those two dots. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have, a, cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Let me read that again and read it better. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. If you do not repent of idolatry, then you're eating at the table of demons. If you continue in your sin, you're eating at the table of demons. And so you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. A ring similar to words that we have from the book of James. With the same tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be our wishy-washy world encourages everyone to bounce back and forth, whim by whim. Bless a little, curse a little, drink a little with the demons, drink a little with the Lord. This should not be. Yes, on the one side, we see that by God's grace, he will continue to be faithful even when we fail and flounder. However, those who persist in sin, who are unrepentant, who have no regular interest in repentance, live in a very dangerous condition. And so we are encouraged to come to the table. And coming to the Lord's table is a time for us to consider who we truly follow. Do we know Christ as Savior? But do we also follow Christ as Lord? Do we go back and forth based on our whim? Well, I feel like doing this right now. Now I feel like doing this. I feel like holding on to my sin, but I also feel like I want to know that God loves me. I want to feel like I can just do whatever is inclined in my heart to do, but I also want to have God continue to just sort of give me nice, gentle strokings and say, 
I still love you no matter what you do. And we try to live in both places. I want to follow myself, but I also want Jesus. But I'm going to keep God over here in a box, and I'll pull him out a little bit as I need him. The warnings of the Old Testament tell us that is a dangerous place to live. Not only for ourselves, because it creates nothing but sin and misery for us, but it robs God of his glory. It's why the sins of unbelief are of a greater magnitude. Those sins that we end up committing are because they start with sins of unbelief. And so it's good to come to the Lord's table and to know it as a table of grace, to know that Christ, his Savior, is available to us, but also to come and to say, I want my soul nourished and I want to follow Christ as Lord of my life for he is the truth who sets me free. Amen.